What is the role of the scholar in democracy? It's my pleasure in this podcast to speak with Professor Tarunab Ketan, Vice Dean of Oxford's Faculty of Law, about the part scholarship has to play in institutional reform. We discuss his pioneering work on discrimination law, the dangers of subtle power, and the health and future of Indian democratic institutions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Beaconsfield Podcast, Episode 4. It's my absolute pleasure today to be speaking with Tarun Ketan. Uh, he's Professor of Public Law and Legal Theory at Wadham College, Oxford. He's Vice Dean of the Faculty of Law at Oxford. And beginning this year, I believe, he's the Head of Research at the Bonavero Institute of Human Rights. So thank you so much, Professor Ketan, for coming on today. Well, thanks very much, Jack, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Just a quick correction. I, I'll be starting at Bonavera Human Rights Institute in July this year. I haven't begun. Wonderful. Well, there we go. We've got something to look forward to. <laughs> um, so, Tarun, you know, this is a show about institutional reform and cultural change. But I always like to begin by asking my guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. So, without being overly dramatic, um, could you share us a bit about your story with us? How did you get to where you are now, what were the formative moments in your life that led, led you to think about discrimination, democracy, and institutional reform? Yeah, so I think I'm here because of a series of accidents. Um, I don't come from an intellectual family. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite mm. of that and grew up in a small town uh, in India before the internet. Um, and frankly, uh, sort of books were a commodity there. Um, <clears throat> so I went to law school because a city cousin who was visiting um, uh, passed on the law school prospectus to me. Um, and I sat for the law school exam, went, got in uh, to this big law school in Bangalore. And that opened up the world. Uh, you know, uh, it was just uh, an astonishing change from a small small town where, and, you know, small by Indian standards, there's still quite a lot mm -hmm. of people, um, but a small town where uh, your imagination is limited by, uh, by the possibilities of other lives that you see around you to, uh, a, to a big city uh, and an ambitious uh, law school where, uh, where you at least know of, if not even meet and flesh and blood people who have done amazing things. So that was um, quite a dramatic uh, and entirely serendipitous uh, change, sort of a, a, a turning point in my life. I guess the next, the move to the academy, um, <clears throat> I enjoyed what I was doing in law school. I loved um, reading and I loved ideas. Uh, and as as a second year student, I, I was interning with um, with a union of farmers and and, and rural farmers and laborers in uh, in rural Rajasthan. This was two thousand and one, I believe. Mm. Um, and it's an amazing organization called Mazdoor Kisan Shakti Sangatan, whose uh, founder or one of its founders is this incredible lady called uh, Aruna Roy, who was a former bureaucrat, left the state service to, to organize some of the poorest and, uh, and most uh, oppressed sections of the Indian people. And that was an eye-opener too, because I just loved their work. I loved what they were doing. And 
and you know Aruna herself lives in this um, mud hut on minimum wage or she used to then uh, like the people she was working with uh, so I remember distinctly and vividly this evening where she's she's sitting on this wooden stove and making rotis for her interns <laughs> uh, in this little mud hut um, and she's asking us one by one what we want to do with our lives and I and I tell her that you know I'm thinking of becoming a scholar um, in, in a very distinctive, thoughtful and kind style, there's a moment of silence. And then she says, you know, a democracy needs its scholars, um, but make sure you write in a way that the people <laughs> understand it, right? And, yeah. and they were both important lessons, uh, you know, the role of, a, of an intellectual in democracy and, and how we write matters as much as what we say. So I, I think those were my formative um, mm. experiences. So when you went to you you went to Oxford and you you studied there afterwards, how did that change your perspective on what you had learnt in India growing up, thinking about democracy and you know discrimination? What what did Oxford do for you with your thinking? In some ways, um, the move from my small town to Bangalore was a was a bigger cultural shift uh, than from Bangalore to Oxford. Right. Um, Intellectually, Oxford was amazing. Um, the rigor that it brought to my thinking, um, learning that it's not enough to want to do good things. Mm. You, to become a scholar, you have to think uh, rigorously. You have to consider opposite viewpoints. You have to take the evidence seriously. Um, you know, this uh, value of peer review, of criticism, of, uh, of seeing criticism as service rather than an attack. Mm. So all those um, virtues of scholarship, uh, I think Oxford uh, made me, well, first it, it sharpened and honed my own scholarship. I, I owe uh, a lot of my uh, uh, intellectual temperament mm. to all. but also uh, the softer virtues that, that nobody sort of spells out for you, but you sort of imbibe what academic freedom means, um, wh what it means to, 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 to be devoted to truth above all else uh, as, a, as a vocational and a professional matter. So, so Oxford, changed all of that in a deep way. My undergraduate education was different in India, in Bangalore. It was, um, it was very exciting. Uh, it was um, a lot more uh, oriented towards politics um, and law. Uh, and I was involved, you know, as, as a student who was interested in his place in the world in a lot of student movements and student political mm. movements you know if, if you if you're not uh, a radical <laughs> in your late teens and early 20s then there's something really sad uh, <laughs> about you right? so so all of that was great um i so i've and i've kept that devotion to um the, the devotion to why i chose the the life i did uh, so the mission was set in India. Mm. Oxford taught me how to do it well. 
so interesting because I think one of the things that I find really cool about your work is that it does have the kind of burning passion of an activist restrained by the, by the critical thinking of the scholar. And something I'd love to hear more from you about is this kind of dual identity that you have forged for yourself. It's not something that you do see often, right? We meet a lot of people day to day who are activists or scholars. And in some ways, it seems to me that the temperaments really clash. Um, like on the one side, the activist has to have a degree of certainty about what they stand for. And they need to pursue that with, with heart um, and with conviction. Whereas the scholar is trained in self-skepticism, trained in doubt, trained in restraint. What does it mean to be both a scholar and an activist? What does it mean to navigate that tension? What are the responsibilities, the comparative responsibilities of those two identities? I'd love to hear more about that. Sure, Jack. So, um, so my self-identity is that of a scholar. Um, mm. I, a, a scholar of the world and in the world. So, um, and you know, that's true of a lot of my colleagues. The, the ivory tower stereotype is just that, a stereotype is <laughs> not true, right? Um, but the tensions you identify are real because uh, a lot of my colleagues get into the academy because uh, they have activist mm. passion. Right? And they, they want to make the world a better place um, than they found it. So, um, and as you say, the tensions are real because the, the first virtue of the scholar is, is truth and the first virtue of the activist is justice. And yes, in the long run, they meet, uh, mm. but not always, not necessarily. And sometimes uh, strategically, it may make sense to bend the truth to get to justice quicker. Uh, so th those are compromises that I would never allow. The, the, the scholar in me will never allow uh, to be made. In some ways, um, I think that my fidelity to, uh, to truth and to, and to the scholar in me, and this, this may sound weird, but makes me a better activist because, yeah. because crafting uh, a sense of identity, um, which others start taking seriously because, because they can see it in your work, uh, of, of an uncompromising devotion to truth um, is always more effective uh, as a strategic matter as well mm. um, because you're taken more seriously mm. than you had an image of somebody who, who is so committed to an objective that any means mm. will suffice. So, um, so in some ways, uh, even the pragmatic or strategic tension uh, melts away. If you take a long enough view, if you, if you accept that I'm a little human being with the ability to change very little mm. in this world, perhaps with, with a minor discursive intervention, uh, but you know, I'll do my bit. And, and mm. if that lets you sleep properly at night, you just play the long game and say, you know, putting truth out there, somebody sometime, someday, maybe after you're long gone, will pick it up. Mm. And, you know, you're working on Burke and you know how, you know, ideas have a life two centuries down yeah. uh, or, or, or many or millennia after, after they're expressed, right? So, so uh, as long as you're not impatient about 
about change, uh, <clears throat> and that uh, that can be hard. And I'm I'm, mm. I'm certainly not against activists. I think that w- the world needs uh, many more passionate activists for for the challenges that it's that it that it's facing. But the more more pragmatic um, compromise that the activist and the academic within me uh, have reached uh, is that the activist gets to choose what I work on. Um, so this is this is this is my Indian education, mm. right? Uh, having having seen uh, the strife, the discrimination, the oppression, the suffering, and and you know, uh, some of it is biographical, a lot of it is uh, experiential, based on what I've seen. Um, the activist chooses what I work on as a scholar, but then the activist must shut up. Mm. Then the scholar has to take over, right? Uh, what questions you ask, how you investigate, um, all of that has to satisfy the rigors of, of my discipline. It has to stand up to the criticism of my peers. And if I'm not doing that, I'm, I'm being a bad activist and a bad scholar. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and, and once, I, once I have written things and published them, then if there is, um, an engagement value in what I've done, I would then do translation work. Uh, you know, recently I've been engaged in a literal translation by doing these Hindi podcasts on constitutional theory, but, but by translation, I just mean remembering Aruna Roy's very sage advice of uh, making my work more accessible through interviews like this one by writing in newspaper op-eds, translating my scholarship for a wider audience. Mm. Uh, and that's, <clears throat> that's the activist's job. But that happens after the academic process mm. uh, has been gone through. And after uh, the scholar is convinced that what I'm putting out in the world is something I can uh, put my name to and not be embarrassed by. That's so, that's really powerful. It's, it's helping me, you know, myself start to think about my own journey and the way that I start to see those identities as working together. So, so the, 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 the activist creates or the reformer creates the kind of conviction to fight an issue. And then the scholar distills that and that separation allows you to be a little less certain about your views to critique them from all angles. And then the activist's responsibility comes back to communicate that to people in a way that's actually going to benefit their lives. And it's that, that's very interesting. I've never heard anyone else articulate that last bit, that bit about communication, like what we're doing now. And um, I mean, let's, let's have that opportunity then let's, let's begin to speak about your work on discrimination law. Um, So you wrote a theory of discrimination law in 2015. It received many accolades, many awards. It's a wonderful book. I've read it myself. Um, it's got a very interesting argumentative structure, which is highly original, but we'll get to that in a moment. Maybe if you can just reproduce the essential argument of your book um, in non-legal terms, I think that'd be really useful for our listeners just to start off. Sure. Um, so, so when I started working on the book, um, people talking about discrimination law, uh, the debate was very tribal, mm. the scholarly debate, but also the activist debate was very tribal. Uh, it still is in many ways, but uh, <clears throat> there were two groups. Uh, one group who saw discrimination as a procedural protection 
for individuals against irrational decisions made by employers based on irrelevant features like your race mm. or your gender. Right. Um, the second camp saw the point of discrimination as solving um, societal, uh, deeply entrenched societal inequalities faced by social groups um, like racial minorities, like women. And the main, it, so one of my abiding maxims uh, as a scholar, of course, sometimes it is wrong, um, <laughs> But, but often when, when intelligent people disagree about a matter and, and in a long-standing disagreement, chances are that both sides um, have landed upon some part of the truth. So, so my, I think my book's big insight was, and again, even that methodological turn um, that I use in a book is borrowed by other scholars like John Rawls and H.L.A. Hart. But uh, the key insight, the key framing insight in the book was that uh, these two camps are actually asking two different questions. And they're both right in their answers, but they're not answers to the same question. Uh, and the two questions were, why should we have this practice, this institution of discrimination law, in the first place, right? This is, uh, this is what H.L.A. Hart called uh, the, the general justifying aim of a practice, right? Why should we have it at all? And to that question, it was the second group which was giving the right answer, which was that we live in a society where women and religious minorities and racial minorities and LGBTQ people and Dalits uh, and all sorts of other social groups uh, live worse lives than their counterparts, racial majority and upper caste people, et cetera, right? And, and these, their lives were worse, not in a trivial way, but in a significant, in a substantial way. Um, <clears throat> so the difference, the, you know, we're talking about aggregate statistical numbers here, but the difference mm -hmm. between these groups was vast. It did not affect uh, just one or two areas of human life. Right? It wasn't just in employment or just in education. We saw the same differences between the same groups occupying the same high position in the hierarchy in almost every sphere of human activity. Mm. You look at healthcare, whether you look at mortality rates, whether you look at education, employment, political representation, we see continuously the same patterns being replicated and that these patterns seemed to be enduring. Mm. over time, <clears throat> that generation after generation, these patterns were stable. And that's why we need discrimination law, you know, because humans have had different blood groups for as long as, I, I'm not a scientist, right, but I'll just make this claim out there that <laughs> I'm wrong, please, somebody who knows better correct me, right? Humans have probably had different blood groups as long as humans have existed. But we see no difference in how what are the chances of our lives succeeding based on whether you're a B positive person or an O negative person? Mm. Uh, I don't even know if there is a blood group called O negative, but anyway. Um, <laughs> so um, so that, is, that is why we need discrimination law. 
But the way discrimination law seeks to solve this societal problem is through a process curing individualized fault-based mechanism which is what the second the first group mm. was focusing on right but that is not asking the question that is not answering the question why do we have discrimination at all mm. the question there is once we recognize the need to do something about these substantial, abiding, pervasive so social differences, how do we go about solving it? Yeah. And you can have different views there as well. And this is one approach, right? Mm. And suddenly it, it, it made so much sense to me that, that these groups were in some ways talking past each other, answering different questions, mm. but not realizing that they were answering different questions. So uh, I hope that <laughs> it does. It, so, so would you say then in terms of, because that's what struck me when I read the book, was it the structure of its argument? So, I mean, I might, I might be misreading this, but it seemed to me that you started off conceptually, like you were asking a, essentially a what question about what is discrimination law? Like what do, what do non-lawyers think and what do lawyers think as well? And then you move to this why question, this normative question. And you grounded that why question in individual freedom. Um, but then the kind of following how to, if you like, the distributive question was, how do we actually, you know, fix this intractable group systemic problem? And what struck me about that is you're using different modalities. So it feels like the first two parts are more legal theory. And then the last bit is when you move into the legal analysis. What are your thoughts on the interaction between those two distinct modalities because i i don't very you know you don't see a lot of legal theorists or philosophers or lawyers integrating their approach in that way but this speaks to how we might actually affect what edmund burke would call philosophy in action so so what do you think about the relationship between the legal theory and the legal analysis it's interesting that you invoke uh burke here because yeah. uh, <clears throat> because the second part so Having identified the problem, uh, well, so, so I, I, I start in the book by thinking about what the law is doing here. So my starting point is very different from what a sociologist mm. might see as a starting point, right? A sociologist will not take a body of law, which is discrimination law, and say, uh, how do we use this to understand the phenomenon of discrimination? She's more likely to, uh, to, to use the methods of her discipline to figure out mm. what discrimination is, perhaps by, um, uh, by looking at the phenomenon from the perspective of those who are discriminated or those who feel they're discriminated and those who are doing the discrimination. Right? Um, but law as a human artifact, as human practice is often a, uh, interesting as a human response to perceived human problems and and therefore uh, wh while while it cannot you know tell us everything we want to know about a phenomenon um it sometimes can be quite revealing so so i started by asking look here is here is a, a law that several jurisdictions have evolved often in conversation with each other in remarkably similar ways with key differences too. What can we learn about, about the phenomenon from, from the law itself? Mm. And as you noticed, uh, the way the law had evolved was starkly different from what how uh, 
what the general population, by general population, I very much mean the dominant groups perceive discrimination to be because oh, right. uh, oh, right. discrimination is, is so controversial in our, in our society, both for epistemic reasons and for uh, reasons related to power. And, and obviously they are linked, you know, because power and knowledge are interlinked, right? But dominant groups tend to find uh, discrimination as a procedural defect uh, mm. in individual decisions based on irrelevant features more attractive because A, that view uh, taken on its own is less threatening to power, but also it, um, it foregrounds the, the mental processes of the discriminator who's often somebody who belongs to a dominant group. So, uh, <clears throat> so as long as in my thinking, yeah. I have not been prejudiced. I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I have not discriminated. Mm. But the law in some jurisdictions, mainly in the latter half of the 20th century, there's been a lot of pushback recently, um, came to adopt the viewpoint of those who experience discrimination rather than those who perpetrate it, right? Who experience discrimination uh, in, in structural ways, in hidden ways, in, in the subtle ways that power uh, operates without being exercised. So the people who claim they are not discriminating are not lying. Mm. They genuinely believe they are not discriminating and still discrimination operates because, you know, power is in a, the ultimate self-enforcing phenomenon. Right? Power begets power and power perpetuates itself, power aggrandizes itself. And when power feels the need to become subtle, it can become so subtle that it's not only uh, those who are powerful, but even those upon whom power is exercised are, uh, cannot perceive it. Mm. So, it, it, so this is you know, Stephen Lukes' work on power, but this is what in the Marxist canon would be called hegemony, right? Uh, it, it becomes imperceptible and that's, that's power at its uh, most powerful, not least powerful, right? So that, so that is part of um, why uh, discrimination is such a difficult phenomenon. But when, you, when I connect that, uh, the, the, the legal, well, drawing a sociological <clears throat> reality from <clears throat> the legal response to the phenomenon and figuring out a normative framework for why this is legitimate, and the normative framework was that it makes a difference to the likelihood of success of your life. Right? Um, connecting that to the legal response was, uh, I suppose, uh, unconsciously on my part, Burkean, because, because the legal response part is not a normative story. Right? That's an explanatory story of, of what is how do we best explain the law that we have on discrimination? Right? And there is no claim in the book, and, and you know, it'll be difficult to sustain that claim anyway, that the way the law responds to solving this hugely intractable, enduring, widespread 
substantial advantage gaps between social groups uh, can be solved through these individualized yeah. process curing approaches, right? Mm. I think that if you really want to solve that, uh, a much more robust legal response is necessary. Yeah. However, uh, and this is where your institutional dynamic comes in, uh, politicians um, are problem solvers, are pragmatic people who, who can only push solutions so far uh, and also incrementally, right? So, so when, when you are up against power itself, when you're trying to dismantle power itself, you will have to work around power, you have to co-opt power, and you have to uh, pick your battles. Right. And this is this is not a uh, a point about moderation or um, or a normative commitment. This is a strategic point, right? Because because power by its nature will win when threatened. Right? Power mm. can fight back um, because it's powerful, right? And to expect that you can win. So anyway, as a matter of fascinating mm. political strategy, it makes sense to hoodwink power by making the powerful as well as the powerless groups mm. uh, both equally protected under the law, uh, getting co-option from power by changing discursive norms around power. So for example, telling companies that a, uh, a diverse workforce is good for business Right. Mm. So these are all discursive and legal interventions mm. that complicate power's ability to fight back. Power has, of course, fought back right? because that is the nature of power. But, but don't underestimate, we cannot underestimate the gains that the law has made in instituting the anti-discrimination norm in the last 40 years in so many democracies so much so that nobody likes being called a discriminator. Right? It's an insult. Mm -hmm. And that, that expressive success, that normative success, I think counts for a lot. And you know, mm -hmm. in some fields like LGBT, well, maybe not T yet, but LGB rights or, um, uh, or rights of uh, people in non-traditional marital relationships or cohabitants, discrimination law has made astonishing yeah. rights. Right? But others like, you know, race and gender mm. have remained stable. And I think the next intellectual agenda is to figure out why the law has been so successful mm. on some fronts and not so much on others. It's, it's, I mean, there's so, that's really, really interesting, particularly how you said, you know, when Burke uses that phrase philosophy in action, he says that it's an ends means question. So, you know, the end here is that normative point. And that's what we were just discussing before about why, it's, why are we doing something? But that means question about how we strategically counter power through our institutions mm -hmm. is where this question of reform comes in, right? And let's talk about this in a concrete context because you said that what we have to try and do is use the expressive power of the law you know its spirit if you like it's it's potential for as an instrument of cultural change what we have to do is use the law in that way to try and generate norms that someone can then pick up in the conversation in the history 40 to 200 years down the line and move with for practical change that people will live with tell us about tarun your 
your experience with the anti-discrimination and equality bill in 2017 in India, because I think that's what you did. Um, but our non-Indian listeners might know, not know the context of that. So if you could just maybe introduce that and then reflect on what the expressive norm generating power of that bill was. So India remains one of the few democracies today. Um, well, a flawed one uh, and increasingly more complicated in claiming a status as a democracy, but we'll put that to one side. Um, which does not have a comprehensive anti-discrimination law uh, that regulates discrimination in the public and the private sphere. Uh, <clears throat> so in 2017, I teamed up with an opposition MP, uh, Dr. Sashi Tharoor, to, to, to introduce in parliament this, this comprehensive bill. And we, we knew that <clears throat> there was no prospect of it actually passing. Uh, because private member bills from opposition MPs don't pass uh, in, in generally in parliamentary systems mm. and <clears throat> and with a very hostile government. Um, so this bill was very much intended to be uh, one that would start a civil society conversation. And, uh, and it was placed in the public domain, not, you know, I, I spent about three or four years consulting uh, activists and academics and lawyers and various groups within India. I made multiple trips, did a lot of workshops in India, leading up to drafting this bill. But, you know, I'm not a public institution. And, you know, Tarun Khetan has done enough consultation is no... Um, uh, it's it certainly not, uh, you know, uh, a reason to, to accept that that's how it should be drafted, right? Public, democratic, responsible institutions need to consult. So, so I, you know, I, I would not have liked the bill to be passed in, in the way it was presented either. The point was to start a public discussion. And that, di that did happen. It did get picked up by the media uh, in a big way. Uh, and then... Uh, Academics started using it for teaching in their classes. Uh, and now there are three or four bills of other civil society groups got interested. They started, they used that bill as a starting point to think further about the issue. So uh, some state governments are thinking about whether to bring in legislation. So the conversation has begun and which was the intention behind the bill. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm enough of a Foucauldian to believe that knowledge is power mm. and ideas do matter. So, you know, uh, I can't, yes, I can't, I, I don't have the capacity to pass a law to prohibit discrimination mm. uh, because I'm not an elected public officer. But what I do is seek to make slight discursive change here and there. Mm. Uh, and, you know, who knows when, what will change. But the idea that the bill is there uh, in the public domain, conversations have begun, um, you know, may well have helped somebody use it to force a norm change in their institution. And that's, that's success. Mm. And see, so I want to talk a bit more about norm change because I've just finished reading The Annihilation of Caste for the first time, um, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar's um, you know, the Dalit leader, inspirational leader of India who wanted to abolish the caste system, a very, very intelligent man who drafted the Indian constitution, if I'm correct. Um, his point in that book is that at the heart of the Indian cultural character 
at least in 1936 when he's writing, is the idea of discrimination. And he's speaking about the Hindu caste system and extrapolating from there. What kind of, how can reformers even start to, to generate cultural change in institutions or nations where prejudices run so deep? Like you said in your commentary around this bill that this bill seeks to realise Dr. B. R. Ambedkar's vision of what India is. I guess the question is, what do you think India is in line with that vision? And do you think we might see cultural change that will bring the people's hearts in line with that vision in the next whatever time? It's, I know it's a big question, but I'd be really interested to, interested to hear what you have to say about that. Sure. So uh, India has many things. Mm. India is, is not and cannot, isn't, you know, it's a defining feature of India to be many things. Uh, and I, I think uh, British Prime Minister Churchill meant it as an insult, but I, I, I see it as India's uh, badge of glory when he said that, you know, India is not a country, you know, or India is as much a country as the equator is a country, right? And, 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 and obviously he was making the point that, that it's just wildly, unmanageably plural. But I think if there is any essence to the idea of India, it is uh, it is that reality of staggering pluralism that is undeniable if you have spent even an hour in <laughs> any right. So so that is both simultaneously uh, a virtue and a curse uh, because. You know, India is, yes, there is astonishing discrimination in India. And yet there is an India that is so much at ease with pluralism. And I know that this might sound extremely jarring in the current context Mm -hmm. um, where we have an almost fascist political discourse as the mainstream discourse, right? But, um, you know, the first time I heard in the UK, a British prime minister, uh, David Cameron, claiming we are a Christian country, my Indian sensibilities were shocked (laughs) because until India's current prime minister, no Indian prime minister, would ever be heard, at least not publicly, saying we are a Hindu country. Mm. And that was a strength, that was India's strength, right? The, the performative multiculturalism of India, again, recently dead, but mm. until recently, every Indian prime minister, you know, we used to mock it, right? And we used to say this is such a low hanging fruit right, to, uh, to, to performatively wear essentialized symbols of multiple religious groups and multiple traditions on religious holidays, or, you know, you're visiting um, the hinterland and you'll wear the dress, right? All of that, there is, as an Indian, I feel nostalgic about it, but also living in a country which is unselfconsciously steeped mm. in its own homogenizing 
and unselfconsciously hierarchical narrative mm. about the superiority of its own majoritarian ways of doing things. So, so I think that the, that the idea that India, and by India, I mean, not just the Indian state, right? But, but India is somehow uh, lagging behind and, and some of the Western countries are the leaders on this discrimination front. I think that has to be complicated because India has a lot to teach countries like the UK and much of Europe on uh, being comfortable with difference and yeah. pluralism and be embracing what might look the you know embracing the bizarre and the eccentric. Uh, so that, that, that innate, I don't even know if tolerance is the right word for that, yeah. uh, that innate normalization of the eccentric, uh, what might be eccentric to you, that is a strength, but, but that is absolutely not to deny the horrendous mm. ravages of discrimination that so many Indians faced when Dr. Ambedkar was writing and continue to face today. So it's, it's a complicated story. There mm. are pluses and there are minuses and we have to acknowledge our, our civilizational strengths mm. while we berate our differences. But also Ambedkar uh, is connected to the, to the, to the previous conversation we were having hmm. about, about the normative goal of justice and the pragmatic strategic constraints of what's possible. Hmm. And Ambedkar is a fascinating character because in his life, he, he is the radical outsider for most of his life mocking the system and pushing the system to its limits and demanding uh, a, uh, the system to live up to a, a set of moral precepts and virtue. And yet, when he takes office mm. for those two and a half, three years as chairperson of the drafting committee of the constitution, he's, he's big enough to recognize the burdens of office and the pragmatic, and, and I don't use pragmatic as a bad word here, mm. the burdens of getting things done while in power, right? Where he adopts a very, uh, mm. one could say incrementalist approach to what the constitution does. And when he leaves office, returns to his radical roots, right? And disowns, the chairperson Ambedkar calls himself a hack who did what he was told to do. Yeah. But this, I think this is, he was an intelligent man, right? And he understood um, the importance of principled pragmatism. Right? So change requires the radicals. Mm. Change requires the passionate activists on the streets because it's the extreme mm. that defines the center or, or close and, and therefore those who are closer to the center, the moderates become acceptable 
to the reactionaries because the extremists exist. Mm. So, so I, you know, for, you know, a, any Joe Biden mm. to use contemporary politicians, you know, any Joe Biden owes his office to a Bernie Sanders, mm. right? And, um, and we've seen, you know, Ambedkar in his single life played both characters. Often mm. these are played by, these roles are played by different people. But, you know, incrementalists need the radicals. But radicals also need the incrementalists. <laughs> right? Because incrementalists are the people who leverage the radicals mm. and their push to, to nudge things away from power. Right? Is, the, is the fear of losing power that the radicals put in the heart of the powerful. Mm. It's but fascinating. Maybe- it's fascinating because um, Ambedkar on the last three pages of The Annihilation quotes Burke and he says, um, he quotes Burke as saying, a state without the means of some change is without the means of its conservation. And Ambedkar <clears throat> is trying to remind the Indian people of who they really are. And that's a phrase that you've used before in your writings. And I thought that was fascinating because it acknowledges that there is an ideal inherent in a people that comes to them by way of their traditions and history and customs. But that ideal is always at stake. It's always contingent on the behavior of people in the ecology today. And in that ecology, there are the reformers, the radicals, and then the centrists kind of being pulled, you know, in the middle to that balance point. And you mentioned earlier in our conversation that we have to watch out for subtle power. And you said we have to watch out for subtle power because it creeps. It's not in your face. It erodes that ideal very gradually, incrementally. It's the dark side of reform. It's the dark side of conservatism. And that to me is what's happening in India today. And you have said this in your work as well, that since 2014, under Prime Minister Narendra Modi and BJP, particularly in the first term of office, there was an intentional, systematic, habitual attempt, a choreographed attempt, I believe you say, to try and undermine Indian democratic institutions. I guess I've got two questions from that. The first is, you've been writing about this a lot since 2014, 2019. Do you have a faith in Indian institutions, democratic institutions, in their ability to withstand that subtle assault? And second, do you think that the tactics of the Modi government have shifted in this second term of office? Is the power still subtle or is it something else now? I'll start with the second question because yeah. it's an easier one to answer, which is that um, I think uh, Modi two point oh, is no longer incrementalist. Mm. I think uh, the confidence, one may say, the overconfidence that comes with winning uh, a second election overwhelmingly uh, with better numbers than the first time around and overwhelmingly in seat terms. You know, the BJP's electoral votes in 2014 were a 31 odd percentage and in 2019 were 36 odd percentage points. So it's still not nowhere close to a majority of the people. Uh, even so, uh, you know, in, in our system, the votes are over translated into seats. 
Um, with that self-confidence has come uh, a self-belief in the government, it seems, that we don't need subtlety and incrementalism anymore. Mm. So what we have seen since 2019 is a much more naked, uh, full frontal, um, crass uh, use of state power. Um, so incrementalism can serve many masters. Right? Incrementalism uh, is a strategy that was discovered by progressives mm. to chip away at power, uh, mainly because they thought it was the easiest way to deal with power. Uh, but like every progressive tool, uh, reactionaries have discovered it too. And there is no reason why you cannot use, it's a, it's a, it's a mechanism. It's not, it's not the goal. There's no reason why you cannot use incrementalism to move in the opposite direction. Uh, I, I think as a, as an Indian citizen and a watcher of Indian politics, I would think of a government that is incrementally undermining democracy to be far more dangerous to the idea of India than a government that is doing it openly and unashamedly. Mm. It's not surprising and it's not a coincidence that the large scale protests over months that we are seeing in India, year after year, began in 2019. That the first term, because it's very hard to rally against incrementalism. Mm. It's very hard to organize a, around it because, um, you know, the paper you, you mentioned, I called it, you know, killing a constitution with a thousand cuts. You can also build a democracy with a thousand cuts. <laughs> or a thousand band-aids. I don't know what the equal metaphor is. <laughs> But, um, but it's hard to organize around it because there is no big ticket organizational reform that will get people on the streets or that will uh, get your opponents to, to rally behind a cause. So it's always more dangerous <clears throat> if it's happening in the direction that you do not like. Mm. Um, so, so I think that they have made a strategic mistake. Now, I, I hope that they're not listening. To, I don't think they're listening to this podcast. I hope they're not listening to this podcast. <laughs> I don't want to be advising them to return to incrementalism uh, because, you know, when power uh, is always there in our lives and it's better when we can see power for what it is. You know, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing is always more dangerous than a wolf <laughs> a wolf. So I'm glad that it's there to be seen uh, in its true form. Uh, on whether Indian institutions can withstand, that's a more complicated question to answer. Yeah. Right. And anybody looking at how the institutions have stacked up um, over the last six, seven years would probably only be able to give a pessimistic response, which is that, you know, uh, most institutions have either being captured or compromised or willingly mm. adopted this new political agenda and are going uh, ahead with it. So, but I think that's only part of a story. 
demo democratic ideals have have a strong and long-term roots in Indian psyche and also Indian civil society. So, so I think while state institutions have mostly capitulated, not all by the way, right? So mm. I think some federal institutions are still standing up. Um, but again, as, as, a, as somebody who's interested in institutional reform, I think there are big design flaws as well that we have, yeah. you know, we have not empowered the opposition. The opposition, the political opposition is, uh, is the Canadian coal mine when it comes to threats to democracy, right? They smell it first because for them it's a question of, ex you know, it's an existential worry. Mm. So, uh, so any system that does not empower the opposition to put the brakes on, and the Indian system does so because it's federal, uh, but that's limited. And I think uh, a serious conversation on opposition rights needs to begin. And you know, again, yeah. now I'm Do writing you, about yeah. translating those ideas. Do, do you think that? As far as I know, the opposition's not written into the Indian constitution. So I think the problem that you write about in your article is that um, BJP, for example, is able to appoint to fourth branch institutions and the like their own people because that voice is not mandated. Just really quickly, what do you think needs to change in terms of reform for the opposition to be empowered? Is it about the Congress reorganising themselves and taking a look at themselves? Is it a party solution or is it more a design change. I'd be interested to hear what you think that actual change might be. So how, how the opposition will gain power is a political question. And, you know, they have mm. to unite. The Congress has to, the Congress is on a death wish, right? Isn't it? Uh, it's, it has to deal with the leadership problem, you know, uh, six, seven years after electoral defeat and then defeat after defeat. They still haven't managed to solve their internal problems. It's a huge issue, and not just the Congress Party. It's not a fiefdom. Indian democracy mm. is at stake. So mm. there is a political question, and there is a, a legal question, right? Which is, when the Congress is in power, will it empower the opposition, mm. which will be the BJP, right? But you know, democracy, um, you know, as Professor Wersky said, is a system where parties lose elections. Right? And every ruling party has to imagine itself in the opposition and create a system that gives it the space that it would like to have in the opposition. Mm. So that's long-term and rational thinking. Mm. But, um, but to get there, the opposition will need to get into power first. Mm. And that's the political question. Yeah. That is the political question. Well, Tarun... It's been an absolutely wonderful conversation. I'm so honored to have spoken with you. I'm really glad we got to cover all of that ground. So thank you for going a little longer than we had planned. But thank you for your work. Please, everyone who's listening, please go and read Professor Kaitan's work. Um, I'll be sharing it around. I'll be sharing it with this podcast. I think it's really important, original, and it's good to see activists who are able to adopt the role of scholar and, and to come and to benefit from all the things that come with that. So. Professor, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Jack. It, it, I, can I rephrase your, your last description, which is perhaps what you're seeing is a scholar who is sensitive to, to the activist needs of the world. Exactly, a scholar who is sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Tony. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having thank me. You.